going to be looking at the continuing in the Apostles' Creed. As I said, we're going to be doing Almighty, but hopefully what you've seen through the course of this is that we are trying to root what we're saying here in Scripture in faith. So I'm going to read a couple of passages. Please stand as we hear first from Matthew 6 and then Matthew 10. Jesus speaking in both of these. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil or spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Then jumping to Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men will also deny before my father who is in heaven. And since the reading of God's word. Amen. Please be seated. So I want us to talk today about Almighty, as in God the Father Almighty, as it comes to us in the Apostles' Creed. And from Scripture, I want us to hear who God is as Almighty, so that we would take comfort in God as Almighty, that we would have peace in life because we trust Him and who He is revealed as Almighty, that we would believe is Almighty and that we would pray to Him as our Father who is almighty, but also not misuse this truth of God's capacity of being all-powerful. Now, what is the almightiness of God? It's always been tempting to think of God being almighty, to think of it in terms of what we would like, to get what we want, to overcome our limitations. And we have a big, powerful friend who will help us do that kind of a fantasy. It's a little bit like what we talked about last week. This this wish projection um, as, as God as Father. Well, He's also a really strong Father who will get us what we want. And we see this sometimes in popular culture. Uh, in any of the Aladdin movies, that's that's actually extending a certain kind of view. God grants wishes, or if you remember way back, I don't know how far back this movie was, Bruce Almighty, Jim Carrey. It's one of the movies that made him. He actually gets. Basically, he has this genie view of God, and God comes to him. Um, it's a fascinating movie, by the way. I don't, I don't know if I'm recommending it or not, but the, the maker of the movie is a Christian, and he actually structured it so that you would see God as a trinity. I don't know if I see it. Anyway, Bruce is complaining. He gets the powers of God, and what does he do? Well, God wants to teach Bruce a lesson, and Bruce just uses it to get cool clothes, take clever revenge on bullies, walk on water. 
he's expressing his own almightiness as Bruce. And that's a, a common view of how we think about God as almighty. But if we think God the Father almighty means when we say that, well, I believe that there is somewhere an unlimited power that can choose and perform anything it likes. And I just need to be on the right side of it. That's what we're thinking. We rob God of his personality to the degree that we can talk about God having a personality, but we're persons because we are made in the image of God. So in in an analogous way, we can think of God having a personality, but we also rob him, not just of his personality, but of his fatherhood. And that's why you have people kind of drifting into talking about God as universe or this, this great power in the sky, that kind of thing. And that kind of belief, God as this ultimate power, doesn't sound like it has much to do with trust, of taking refuge, of belief. It makes us to respond to God like he's a bully, and we're just siding with the bully to appease him, but not because we really trust him, since we know this guy kind of flies off the handle. It makes God just this this amorphous blob power, like a huge arbitrary will. It can seem unsettling. That can seem too wild. And for some of us, maybe this is how we've experienced it, abusive, all-powerful, but harsh. And friends, maybe some of you feel that way about God this morning in your relationship to his power and his almightiness. That it's too much, too harsh, too caustic. But I want us to turn to the words of Jesus, because one of the things that we learn both from the creed and then from scripture is the primary way we know who God is, is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And look how Jesus talks about God's power in Matthew 6. The cash out for us of God being in control is not revenge. It's not cowardice. It's not any of these things. It's God's care. In fact, he talks about stuff that's very germane, very important to us. Clothes, food, peace. Four different times, in fact, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, almost like he's speaking to us here in the 21st century, what? Don't be, finish it, anxious. Yeah, (laughs) don't be anxious. Sometimes that works, sometimes one says different things. He says, don't be anxious. And he says that. Not to shame us, oh, you're worrying, but to comfort us, to relieve these pressure points that he knows that we feel living in the world. Because he's saying, he's acknowledging, I know you're going to worry about getting by in the world. But as your maker, I care for you, and I'm involved in providing for you. He's not inattentive or indifferent. He's good. He cares. He has shown up. And Jesus ultimately is God's proof of that. Again, remember our context, whenever the the Apostles' Creed was written, it was written uh, when there were a lot of gods who were worshipped. And the Almighty, we think of our God as Almighty, is not like the power of the pagan gods who were moody, who were kind of bullies. Um, Folks like Hades, Zeus, Ares, if you remember them, familiar with them. They would intervene in the world from time to time and really doing it based on what was good for them. But instead, God being almighty, his might is everywhere present in creation, not occasional, but constant. 
In fact, God's providence, his almightiness is the underlying mystery of everything that exists. Hebrews 1, for example, says that God upholds the universe by his power. He's actively doing it. Colossians 1, it's actually taking what is said of God of Almighty and applying it to Jesus, says, In him, all things hold together, as if Jesus is, and Scripture confesses this, the cosmic glue of the universe. It's like he's holding the world in his hands. And the witness of Scripture is that God being Almighty is not just a solution to problems in the world, but rather, it's the reason there is a world at all. The next time I come and preach, we'll talk about that when we talk about creation. But as we think about almightiness, faith is an issue too. Because, and let's be honest here, we couldn't really trust in God if God's power were limited, if it were sporadic, if it were unpredictable. A God who exercised that kind of power would be a pagan God and not the world's sustainer, almost rather someone who is like an invader of the world or, or, or a distant ruler um, who has to impose his will by force. And really, he can only do that some of the time. And that's one of the problems with trying to place limits on God's power. If God's power were just one power among many other powers, if God were mighty, but not almighty, then divine power would end up being another form of manipulation, another form of coercive, acidic control, some of the things that we resist or maybe have even experienced in the church. But only a God who is totally free, who is totally sovereign, can relate to the world, can relate to you and I with total love, with total patience, with total generosity, kind of like Jesus expresses there in Matthew 6. All right, well, let's, let, let's, I'm going to answer a question maybe you're not asking, but hopefully you're, you're thinking about. What about God again in the Hebrew Bible, in uh, the Old Testament? We talked a little bit about this last week whenever we talked about God being Father. It sure seems like he can act like these pagan gods. Yes, he is in control of things, but man, he will fly off the handle and he will just wipe us out. Uh, for example, think about this classic passage. It seems that everybody knows, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19. God appears, he's talking with Abraham. There's an outcry because of injustice in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did he decide to do? I'm going to wipe out the city. I'm going to take care of these cities, uh, because there's unrighteousness that is pervasive. And he promises to send fiery destruction because of all that. Now, what happens? Well, before we actually get to the Genesis 19 uh, brimstone stuff, Abraham intervenes. It seems like he intervenes, doesn't it? He knows God. Abraham knows God, knows there is a crisis with Sodom. Seems like things are going bad. What's the subtext there? Is God just going to give up? Is he just going to wipe everyone out because he can, because he's ticked off and flies off the handle if he's just wanting to kind of do wheelies with his power? And it seems like, you remember there's this, Abraham's almost bartering. God, you don't want to do that. It just, people are going to say these different things. What about if you find 50 people who are righteous? Okay, 50, Ooh, 40, 30, and he just keeps going down. 
And it seems, though, doesn't it, that as if Abraham has to kind of persuade God to do the right thing. A little bit like our passage with Moses in Exodus chapter 32 last week. But here's the thing. Tied to God's power is almighty. God lets himself be bargained with. I mean, that's another way that we talk about prayer. And as Abraham haggles away, he's gradually reducing the number of good people there would need to be in the city for God to spare it. More and more, he is revealing with each exchange the graciousness of God that he knows is there, but God is drawing him into this relationship. So it's a story about Abraham. And if you will dare, it's a story about us seeing and relearning that God really is trusted to do right, not to be unjust. That God himself works in, works with, works under even Abraham in these particular circumstances of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the most vivid way for God to show this to Abraham is by having Abraham, having us appeal to the deepest and most true thing about God as Abraham prays to him and as we pray to him, that he is powerful and just. See, Genesis 18 is not there to show us that God is bad-tempered, that he's just capricious, uh, he needs to be calmed down by sensible human beings, rational human beings. Instead, God walks us through this story about trusting in what we know is most fundamentally true. God, yes, is powerful, but he is also faithful. So God is all powerful. But there's other power in creation as well. God creates, he upholds everything and everyone. But in each living thing, because of the way God has ordered the universe, it has its own unique. Put it like this. You have your own unique power and energy. But God doesn't have to compete with us. It's not a zero-sum game. God is in control of all things. And the way that he has made things is he gives us agency, abilities, power to decide and engage in this world. So God's power, think of it like this. God's power, like the power of a good parent or teacher, is the capacity to nourish other agents, other people like you and me, to help our freedom grow. That's what it means to live in the image of God. In the same way, God's sovereignty is what actually secures our freedom and not what threatens it. So what does that mean? What's the through line running through that? There is nowhere God is absent. Nowhere God is powerless or irrelevant. No situation in which God is not to be relied upon. No situation in which God is at a loss. The freedom of his love implies that his love never exhausts its resources. God never runs out. His heart never grows cold and empty toward us. No matter what may happen in the universe in general or in your life in particular. Nothing outside of him can frustrate his longing because he has made all things. And we know that ultimately God is not frustrated at his intentions because he is coming back and he's going to set all things to rights. And we know this because Jesus is the emblem of that and has made those promises himself. All right, well, here's the last thing I want to say in Almighty. And I know that this is just kind of a, we're not afraid as Presbyterians to kind of make it a little bit thicker here so you can have something to chew on. So I'll leave you with one more thing, but this really has a, it kind of fleshes out in terms of how you relate to others or maybe how you think about 
uh, hard or difficult situations in your own life. Okay, so understanding what we've said about God as being almighty and understanding, as I said, that really I want this to be used for comfort, that we would understand as almighty, that would be something that would induce in us good and praise. What's too often happened is the exact opposite has happened whenever we've talked about God being all-powerful. It can instill fear, dread, anxiety, resentment even. Uh, Let me put it like this, since we're in a Presbyterian church, a favorite theologian of mine, Methodist guy from Texas, he said, it is surprising that Christianity has survived Calvinism. Now, what did he mean by that? Why did he say that? Well, as a Calvinist, I'd say he was predestined to say it. But there, there's, there's more. There's lots of reasons he'd say this, but I would agree with him to the degree he means this when he said this, that there is often presented by Calvinists, by Christians, by Presbyterian Reformed folks, a very rigorous and menacing and cold view of God that has often been produced and evinced as a result of Presbyterian ministers, Presbyterian and Reformed folks preaching on the sovereignty and almightiness of God in a one-sided way. So, for example, uh, think about your life or think about someone's life. You know, something horrible, really hard happens. Uh, and it, it, it's obviously something bad, uh, maybe a run of bad circumstances. You're uh, washer broke, you owe more taxes than you thought, uh, you have to pay for braces, uh, a pet gets sick and it costs you a ton of money. And let's say this all happens in one week or something far more difficult, uh, an illness befalls you, something like depression, cancer, or there is a death of someone who's very close to you uh, that, that happens. Well-meaning Christians can reply As you are going through those things, God is on the throne. God is in control, sister. All of this happens for good, quoting the passage from Romans. Let me just say, on a very real level, yes, all of that is true. The Lord never has his hand off the wheel of circumstances. We are cared for in the midst of suffering, according to Matthew 10. But there is more to it than that, y'all. Proverbs 15.23 says to make an act or an appropriate answer is a joy to a person. In a word and season, mm, how good it is. But the, the opposite is also true. The right word at the wrong time is inept. It would be like cracking an egg with a sledgehammer. Because the subtext of talking about God's power wrongly is this. Regardless of what someone intends... Well, if you don't like what's happening to you or you don't accept that it really is a good thing, then somehow you're opposed to God and you just have a very meager view of God, even a rebellious view of God. When I was pastoring here a long time ago, there was a young couple that came to our church and um, the wife had told me about her father. who was honestly, he's about when he died, he is the age I am now. And he had passed away suddenly and unexpectedly of a heart attack just a few years prior. This was said this was a young couple and the loss was obviously still difficult for her to bear, 
because it was a parent she loved very much. And so she's telling me the story. I was just listening. But before I could even say a word to her, just, uh, you know, acknowledging what was going on, she literally clenched her jaw and said, but I know God made it happen for a reason. And somehow it was good. And then she just stared into the distance there. And it was obvious to me that she was just repeating what she had been told many times over. I could also tell that it was not a comfort to her as much as a grim confession of a hard, cruel, mysterious power who is at work. Affirming God's almightiness in that case had not been balanced with affirming God's care and even mysteriously God's own ache if I can put it like that, at her suffering and loss. The right truth applied in probably the wrong way. That's what happened in her case. And it it, it was uh, abrasive, like a rasp going across her soul. She knew God was in control. She was not sure he was good or that he was wise. But you see, we have to understand, especially when we're holding in tension, and it's okay to hold things in tension because we're finite. When we're holding in tension things like God's care and his almightiness to look and see how it was expressed in the very life of Jesus, right? This is how we come to know God. Think of John chapter 11. And John chapter 11 is the healing of Lazarus. Lazarus was a friend of his. Uh, he was the brother of Mary and Martha. And he was away from Lazarus when he died. He got word. He was a distance away. And so they were on the way to go heal Lazarus. Lazarus died. And the, and in fact, he died because Jesus kind of dawdled, um, just was spinning his wheels a little bit trying to get there. And the disciples are like, brother, you could have sped this up and we could have got there in time. And listen to what Jesus said in, in 11 or uh, chapter 11, verse 15. Okay, the almightiness, all powerfulness. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, talking about the disciples who are there, who are not proximate to Lazarus. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So on the one hand, what does Jesus affirm? I'm in control. I'm Lord of even this. It's hard. It's difficult. But my hand is not off the wheel. But then to the grieving Sisters, Mary and Martha, to the ones mourning, what does Jesus say? Jesus speaks of hope in the gospel. He speaks of hope in the resurrection and in front of Lazarus' tomb. And even before he raises him, what does he do? He weeps. He weeps. He mourns at this cosmic injustice of death entering into God's world, at this disruption of his friendship, even if it's just for moments in his case, because Lazarus died and that ruptured something between him, his friend, and Jesus. He entered into that with care and compassion. He mourns with those who mourn. God is almighty in his capacity and his power. To enter into us and enter into a situation, any kind of situation before us to also recognize sorrow. God recognizes our sorrow. He calls us to recognize sorrows, sadness and loss. And we are free as Christians, called as Christians to do that for one another too. In his power, Christ entered into our experience 
our struggle, our sadness, our hope. And in him, those are being redeemed and are redeemed. But right now we live in between times. Times of suffering and ultimate renewal. Time when we we mourn, not without hope, but we do grieve. Not without purpose, we do grieve. And we recognize that sometimes what feels like a futility in this life. By faith, we are held together by the one. The scripture says, holds it all together. So let's go to him in prayer now.